Well, hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-host, Caroline D.R.T. Edwards and Maria Wickvilla. Maria is the founder of Applicant Lab, and Caroline, of course, is the former head of admissions at NCOD and a co-founder of Fortuna Admissions. This week, we're going to talk about two things. Uh, Harvard Business School recently disclosed their new class profile, and the big headline is that they've enrolled the largest single class of MBAs in uh, the school's history, 1,010 first-year MBA students. We'll get into that in some detail, along with other aspects of the class profile, and and whether or not you know, you know it's a reflection of uh, the entering classes overall at, at other schools this year. And then we're going to also talk about a fun topic that I think uh, a lot of people might get a kick out of. It's 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 a bit of entertainment as well. I'm a obsessive uh, reader of Reddit as pertains to business schools. And there was a recent post on there. And I'm just going to read the headline because it's intriguing enough. And we're going to talk about this and have some fun with it later on. Is it dumb to pursue an MBA, at least in part, to find a wife? We'll neutralize that and say, in part, to find a spouse, taking it from both angles. And we'll uh, have a really, I think, lively discussion about that topic with Maria and Caroline. But first, the Harvard Business School class of 2023 profile. Just in rough terms, uh, there was a 5% increase in application volume to 9,773 applicants. That's a pretty big uh, jump. And I will say that while it's 5% and, you know, Wharton was up two and a half and Wharton and Kellogg actually was down 20%. A lot of us expected that number to actually be higher. It's not a record at Harvard. Uh, it is the largest application volume in, in four years, I believe. We expected it to be higher largely because uh, Harvard did not participate in the big applications last year due to the pandemic, uh, largely because its two deadlines pretty much ended before the pandemic really uh, hit the United States. So everyone was thinking, oh, this could be a record year for Harvard, including myself. And it turns out that it was not. However, the school did get 10.7 candidates for every available seat in the class. And the reason why there are so many, more than 1,000 students who joined the Harvard Business School class of 2023 is because 100 of them deferred from last year due to the pandemic. So if you'll recall, last year was unusually low for Harvard, 732 students, when it typically enrolls a class of 930. The school is expecting similarly sized class next year uh, when another 100 deferrals will, will come into the crop. So, Caroline, what do you make of all this? I mean, we, we knew that they were going to have a bigger class coming in. I, I think it's great that they have, you know, maintained pretty good diversity um, despite the increasing numbers. I, I think it's very impressive that they've still got a 730 GMAT Given all of the disruption with test taking over the past year, and a lot of people, you know, have had to take the online test, which wasn't necessarily as easy to do as the, the traditional test. A lot of test centers were closed. People had to sort of cancel dates. And so just the accessibility of, of the test was, was much lower over the past year. And so on average, you know, I'd imagine candidates have not been able to take it 
as many times um, or if they're going to retake, they might not have been able to retake it as they may have done in the past. So maintaining 7.30 despite that context is quite extraordinary. So I, I, I think that, you know, it, GMAT is just one data point, right? But I think it shows that it's yeah. an incredibly strong class academically um, yes. and, you know, speaks to the, uh, the, the the wonderful pool of candidates that they attract and their ability to really sort of cherry pick the best out of that. Yeah, and that 7.30 has been pretty stable over quite a few years now as a median for the class at Harvard. Interestingly enough, I'll just point out that for whatever reason, Wharton actually has a 7.40 median GMAT score this year, which blows my mind since it's 10 points higher than Harvard, uh, and a 7.33 average. Some people think that Wharton is over-indexing standardized test scores. But Caroline, actually, you have another theory on this, which is that, you know, a disproportionate share of financial candidates tend to apply to Wharton, given its reputation in finance. And those people are more quant heavy and are likely to score higher. Uh, That's your reasoning, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's just got such an amazing reputation, right, for for, for finance. And I, I, I do think it tends to attract people with a strong quant background and, and perhaps a slightly disproportionate percentage of those candidates. And, and therefore, they're going to have a very high, incredibly high average GMAT in the applicant pool to start with. So I, I think it's driven by that, perhaps more so than over-indexing the GMAT. Yep. And then the undergraduate GPA for Harvard's new class is 3.69. And that's just a wee bit down from the 3.70 from the previous year, but nicely above Wharton at 3.6. And Kellogg is at 3.7, pretty much the same, let's face it. Maria, this is your alma mater. What do you you think of these numbers? 46% women, 37% international. Yeah, I mean, I think the international percentage is roughly the same as it has been in previous years. So I'm glad to see that the pandemic has not severely limited international students' ability to join the class. Uh, I'm excited to see, you know, slow but steady progress on the on the female student front. I think it, it's fantastic that it does keep sort of inching upwards every year. Um, one of the things that I was happiest to see is that I think almost 30% of the class was admitted with a GRE score. And this is something that we admissions consultants have been telling people for years because there are so many rumors out there on the message boards <laughs> that yes. are not true. And one yeah. of them is that like, oh my gosh, like if you apply with a GRE score, you are going to put yourself at a disadvantage. And you, you know, if you're really serious about this, you'll apply with a GMAT score. And I think maybe 15, 20 years ago, that was correct, but now it's not. And so even three years ago, the class of the entering class of 2020 of the class submitted a GRE score. Uh, And this year it's 29, so almost 30. So let's, you know, do the quick math and say it's double. So twice as many people are in the class now with a GRE score. And so I think that that is hopefully of some relief to people who find the GMAT format to not be their strongest, you know, to not allow them to show off their strongest academic skills. So I was really pleased uh, to see that. Yeah, I asked Chad Losey about that yesterday because we we did an interview uh, based on the numbers that came out. And he said, you know, I hope the message is getting out that we're really truly agnostic when it comes to a standardized test. So applicants really should take the exam that allows them to put their best foot forward. 
And he's also attributing the increase to a greater diversity of people who are coming in from all different kinds of backgrounds to get an MBA, since the GRE obviously is more accepted for other grads. Some may, you know, be thinking about, okay, do I get a master's in public policy or a master's in another topic um, that's not necessarily business? And then uh, they may be thinking, okay, but what about business? And the GRE allows that flexibility. And, and therefore, in that net, you might catch people uh, who you otherwise would miss with the, with the GMAT, which is um, his logic on why it's increased so much in recent years. And clearly, they have no preference whatsoever. So you're right. On, and yet you go on a lot of these discussion boards and you'll see people say, no, you got to do the GMAT. It's, it's the preferred test. And you're right. It used to be that was the case. Uh, no longer is true. You know, beyond the numbers, in this, in a way, you look at these numbers that come out in class profiles and they kind of sell these classes short. And this is what I mean by it. We know that the people who are attracted to business education at this level are truly exceptional. They come from every walk of life. They have amazing accomplishments already. You know, most of them have about five years of work experience and they've done really fascinating, interesting things. Uh, so when you look at these numbers, GMATs, GREs, percentage of acceptance, class size, women internationals, underrepresented minorities, GPAs, they kind of undersell the magic of a business school. Maria, do you agree? Well, yeah. I mean, that's the same reason why, not, not to keep bashing on message boards, but that's the same reason why, you know, when someone posts on a message board, like I have a 720 GMAT and a 3.6 GPA and a whatever, like, what are my chances of getting in? And it's like, it's so much more than that. <laughs> it is, yeah. it goes so far beyond those numbers. Like it's, it's really, you know, which is of great disappointment to people who are, maybe not so proactive in their lives, but who happen to be good test takers. But it is great news to people who go out there and make things happen. And they perhaps are not so strong at things like standardized tests. So it's it's really, yeah, looking, uh, you know, analyzing like, oh, it's 7.30 versus 7.33. And what do the tea leaves say about that? I don't, you know, what does that say about my chances of getting into one school versus <laughs> another? Do I need a three-point higher average GMAT to get into Wharton? But like, no, it's, it's it really comes down to... Um, you know, I, I I like to use the the I don't know if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is of a psychological course. concept that you need. Like, you can't really care about your emotional, spiritual well being if further down on this pyramid, you know, you're starving to death or freezing to death. Uh, and it's the same thing with with admissions. Like, yeah, you know, hey, you have to show academic strength, but that's sort of table stakes. And then beyond yeah. that, it really to go up that ladder or up that pyramid increasingly gets harder and harder because you have to show more and more ability to make an impact outside of yourself. True. And that's something that these, these stats will never capture. Yeah. And Chad made a point of saying, you know, look, the standardized test score and the GPA help us triangulate his word, who is ready for a rigorous academic program. But both of those um, data points uh, are only two in a holistic admissions process. And I think that's especially true um, at Harvard and in most schools uh, that are looking at great MBA candidates. Any other comments on 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 the uh, application volume? Are you, uh, Caroline, a little surprised that it still fell far short of record levels, given the fact that Harvard didn't participate in the pandemic boom uh, last year? Well, I do think the market has slowed a little bit compared yep. to the huge surge that we saw in 
um, in in the spring of last year. So, you know, there was definitely there were there was an outpouring of applications then, and you know, it, it's it's cyclical, right? It was not going to be, it was not sustainable that the levels would would stay at that level. And as you said, you know, Harvard didn't participate really in that surge to the same extent, given that they didn't have a deadline that fell around that that time when it was the start of the pandemic and there were lots of applications being thrown <laughs> thrown out yeah, um, uh, left, right and centre. So, but, you know, it doesn't really affect them, right? Because they have yeah. such tremendous volume anyway. And it's not really about the volume. It's about the quality. And they, you know, clearly have incredibly consistent quality coming in. And I do think, you know, and I saw that when I was at INSEAD, that often the, the in, when there's a, increase in volume that additional those additional applications are not always of the same quality as the as the steady stream of really strong candidates that come through every single year right so when you get a big surge in applications on average sometimes the volume drops a little bit but they have this just you know incredible pipeline of wonderful people who are applying every year right and and so I don't think they would be very concerned about you know a few percentages up points up here uh, up here or down there year by year it's it, they still have this hugely successful pipeline that, that that's coming through regardless of of those um those variations true and and uh, it's worth pointing out because i mentioned earlier that kellogg's applications plunged 20 percent in the same period when harvard's went up five percent but the year before <laughs> uh kellogg's applications were up 54 percent broke the school previous at Wharton, where the apps were up this past year, two and a half percent. The earlier year, they're up 21 percent. So there is a bit of a roller coaster effect here, which actually Harvard more or less evaded uh, by not participating in uh, the pandemic-induced boost to applications last year because its uh, deadlines were early and they didn't extend them and they didn't you know, provide any waivers of GMATs or GREs as other schools did. All in all, uh, the big thing, of course, is I think it really is two headlines, probably largest class ever, over a thousand students, which meant that Harvard uh, added another section to accommodate that large number. And that will occur again next year. And then the following year, they'll go back to normal. And then the big rise in the GRE test takers, 29% up from uh, 12% four years ago. That's quite a big increase, uh, which shows increasing acceptance of GRE as an alternative to the GMAT in business school admissions. Now, the other thing, and we were discussing discussion boards as well, comes from one of the discussion boards at Reddit on MBAs. And it just attracted my attention because, you know, I have heard over the years that many people actually go and get an MBA, not just to find a partner in life. But it is a, a sort of secondary reason. And so for this one gentleman to ask, is it dumb to pursue an MBA, at least in part to find a wife? I found that uh, kind of fun and interesting. And he said, I'm going to read his post. Going to be honest, I've worked in careers, IV and private equity, after graduating from college that haven't really given me a chance to hang out with my friends, let alone date. 
while my main goal is to pursue an MBA, which would allow me upward mobility in the PE world, I definitely am also thinking about how it would be a great place to find like-minded, driven people sharing similar goals. Is this super dumb or idealistic? Are most people doing MBAs already married? So, uh, Maria, let's start with you about this, because after all, I believe you met your husband at Harvard Business School. I did. And I can tell you, I did not enter business school with that as my goal. But I can tell you a lot of other women did. I think a lot of people in general do, especially the people who work in these crazy intensive analyst programs where, yeah, like you don't even get Thanksgiving off. So what makes you think you're going to get a chance to date people? Um, I, I I remember vividly, you know, one of the first first or second week of school, the women of my section had a ladies brunch. And I remember going and being a little bit horrified at how many of them were just overtly like, yeah, I'm here to find a husband. And And I think a lot of women were very open about that. We, the rest of us call them the, that they're, they're there for the MRS degree and not the MBA. Um, you know, and, and they were even, yeah, it was just, it was pretty, it was pretty funny. And I was like, wow, like I'm, I'm actually here to learn. Uh, and the irony is that uh, some of the women, many of the women who were there explicitly to try to find a husband did not find one in their two years. And I was not trying to find a husband and I did. So I don't know what that says about how the universe works. But yeah, I mean, I met my husband. Uh, we met through the Entertainment and Media Club because that was my former industry and his former and current industry. Uh, but we started, you know, I got interested in him because I was the humor editor for the weekly campus newspaper. And he submitted something that was so funny. It made me laugh out loud. <laughs> and I sent it to a friend of mine. I was like, this is hilarious. This is the funniest thing ever. Um, and normally there had been another guy named Mark Tayon who had always written something funny. And I was like, man, Mark really outdid himself with this one. This is the best thing he's written yet. And then I looked at the byline and I'm like, wait a minute, Larry Wasserman, that guy from the entertainment and media club, he wrote that. And so then at the next entertainment and media club event, I was like, that thing you wrote last week was the funniest thing I've read. And we're going to be friends. I've decided we're going to be friends. And so he was like, okay. And then now, you know, almost 20 years later, here we are. Married, child, mortgage, right. the whole thing. That's a wonderful story. <laughs> <laughs> and Carolyn, although you didn't meet your husband in business school, uh, you did meet him by going to business school and being in Singapore. Yeah, yes, that's right. So we had met um, actually 10 years before I went to INSEAD, but then coincided again when I was um, when I started on the INSEAD campi- campus in Singapore because he was then working in Singapore, and that's when our paths crossed again. So, so we started dating in January when I'd started the program, and I remember one of one of one of my male classmates complaining that they only had twenty percent women, and it wasn't fair if the uh, if the twenty percent women started dating people outside of the student cohort. It was reducing the numbers. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so, so, yeah, I have to thank INSEAD um, for bringing us together again. Of course, his mother tells the story differently and believes that, you know, I was pursuing him internationally for 10 years in the intervening period and finally managed to, to collar him in <laughs> Singapore. <laughs> but that's not okay, quite how it <laughs> One of the comments on the on this uh, board says, I'm going to read this because this is fun. I love the fact that you're being honest about this because it's something a lot of people consider, but don't like to divulge, especially not men. 
I graduated in 2020 and we took stock of all the couples in our class. Out of 30 couples, four are now engaged. 13 isn't bad. I also met my boyfriend in school and will likely get engaged next year. However, business school dating is extremely tricky and fraught. I have a lot of thoughts on it. Any thoughts? Yes. Among the two yeah. of you? Well, it, it, gets, it can get a little bit claustrophobic, right? Because you're all together all of the time and the relationships can get quite complex. And, you know, you can be in a teams together, right? You're in a classroom together. So sometimes if it's a bit of a roller coaster, it's not always easy being in the same place as that person all day and all night, right? Um, because it's, very, it's a very intense experience being at business school. So, yes, it's not, not, not always easy for sure. And the advice that I always give people is try your best to not date anyone in your section or your cohort. You know, if you are in a forced environment where, say, for one semester, you are in the same classes with everyone, you know, especially at a place like HBS where for that entire first year you're in the same classes with everyone – I love, Caroline is so good at finding diplomatic words. I, I've always <laughs> admired that. You, you know, she used the word claustrophobic. Um, you know, I, I would say it can be super crazy awkward. I had This happened in my section, like two people sort of casually dated, but one of them didn't know it was casual and the other one thought it was casual. And then so it ended up breaking up and being, and then they were, that happened in like September, <laughs> yeah, end of September. And then they had the whole rest of the academic year. Ooh stuck in class together and so if things things go south like you you know so maybe hold off or at least you know wait uh, you know maybe hold off. so because my husband was a different year than I was so we didn't have that sort of that sort of thing but we did sort of keep it on the down low at first just because you don't want you know you just don't want rumors to fly and we were like ah we don't know if this is going to work because you never know if it's going to work at first um and the funny thing is that we kept it on the down low for a few months and then a mutual friend of ours tried to set us up on a blind date. And Aww. he was like, I, he said to Larry, he's like, there's this first year girl that I think would be great for you. And he said this, he's like, there's a guy I know in my class that I think, like, can I set you guys up? Uh, not realizing that we had already come to that same conclusion ourselves. Oh, that's so funny. Um, but, but anyway, well, but like, but, very perceptive of him. <laughs> I know, right? So I was like, if anyone, you know, I wrote in one of our class notes things, like if, if Omar ever tries to set you up with anyone, listen to him. <laughs> He's very good at this. Um, but seriously, though, like I think, you know, Cheryl Sandberg once said, and I disagree with a lot of, of Cheryl Sandberg's things, but she did once say, like, the most important career choice you can make is whom you marry. I think this is more important. I, th I think for men, you know, look, this, this person, let's assume it's a guy who's working in PE is yep. saying, I'm, I'm interested in a wife. Like, look, let's be honest, the PE types, they could get the sort of trophy wife, you know, model who, you know, has a, you know, I don't know, paper mache you mean, business. You mean like us, Maria? Like us. <laughs> like the, well, I mean, we've got braids and beauty. Yeah, we <laughs> I got it all. It's an audio only podcast. So yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Like both of us, Caroline models, but also with brains. Like if you know what I mean, like a guy, like a person like that doesn't need, a, a, you know, there, there's certainly no shortage of, of people with powerful positions who intentionally choose a spouse who is, you know, they maybe they like being the smartest person in the room and they don't want a spouse who's their intellectual equal or they want a spouse that's just going to sort of sit at home and take care of the kids. And, and, and that's great. Um, but if you are looking for a spouse who is going to be intelligent, who is going to be driven, who is going to be ambitious, business school or graduate school in general is a great place 
to go. Uh, and I would also advise that you start off by making friends with people because even if you don't date people who are in your MBA class, those people have friends, right? Those people might have friends in the MPA program or the pu public health program or other graduate schools within the broader university. So I know a lot of people who ended up marrying someone from the School of Public Health or someone from the School of uh, you know, Public Affairs, the Kennedy School. So just you know, cast a, cast a wide net. But yeah, if you're looking for someone ambitious, business school is a great place to go. And I would say more so for women to find a guy who will be supportive of you as opposed to you know, if you marry someone who might want to try to hold you back or might sort of have these outdated ideas on gender roles. Uh, one final thing I will say is that I think the original post said something like, oh, are a lot of people married already? And so did I sort of miss the train? I, I think there are a lot of people who show up who are married, but, you know, uh, it was interesting. I actually, there were several divorces uh, in my section and people ended up marrying other people in the so Business school can be bad for marriage. It really can be. Right. And I and I think it can be yeah. well, it can be bad for marriage, especially for people who are from more traditional countries where they get married at a very yes. young age. Right. Uh, and especially I it was interesting, this could just be a coincidence, but there were a couple of women I knew who had gotten married 19, 20 years of age in more traditional societies where women are not perhaps as maybe might not be as respected as much. And then they got to the States and they were like, wait a minute, <laughs> like, this is great. You know, and this so is, as, this is where MBA stands for married but available. Married but available, you know. I mean, <laughs> some people, some people did it. Um, so anyway, just go with an open mind, but don't yeah. try to force it because then I think it that it just gets weird. And it can be a good stress test for a marriage. There you go. School. Yeah, oh, for sure. But, but, but better to do that in your twenties than you know in your forties when you got three kids and a big house mortgage, right? So mm. better to find it out sooner than later. Words of wisdom. There's a woman who really agrees with you, Maria. She says this definitely happens with MBA students. I'm not sure why people, and she's referring to other commenters on this discussion board, are suggesting trying uh, Hinge or Tinder. The honest reality is that if you're looking for an equally paired partner, it's really hard to find someone of high quality via those apps or just by chance. Going to do an MBA for careers, also to find a life partner, which is an equally major decision, is valid. I've honestly thought the same because as a successful hiring woman in tech with certain values, it's pretty difficult to also find someone with similar attitudes around lifestyle and ideas for our future. So I think this guy is on to something. I wouldn't go to business school to find a spouse, but certainly it's not a bad place to find someone uh, who is like-minded, ambitious, uh, more thoughtful and curious about the world and, and wanting to have a meaningful role in it. So Maria and Caroline, thanks for a great discussion as always. And uh, to all of you out there, I hope you enjoyed this version of Business Casual. Join us next week. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quads.